Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, whether you have a printed copy, as I hope you bring to church, or an app with a, uh, uh, the Bible on it on your device, I want you to find the book of 1 Corinthians. I hope you never fail to remember how blessed we are at Church at the Mill to enjoy the worship that we endure and enjoy every single week. And to be able to connect with you in God's Word for just a few moments with the full strength of my voice, I'm feeling much better. Thank you for your patience with me last week. is a true honor. Now, I want to preach to you this morning from the book of 1 Corinthians, specifically from chapter 10, verse 22, verse 23 rather, down to the first verse of chapter 11. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23, and down to chapter 11, verses 1. This is the last sermon in a sermon series we've called American Idols. Now, it's not the last sermon in 1 Corinthians. In fact, next week we'll dive right into 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. I'm excited about a new sermon series called Church Matters, and we're going to be dealing with a lot of different subjects within the church. But before we do that, we must finish our exploration of this idea of fleeing from idolatry. Now, we use the term American idols because we've done our best to connect the idolatry of the first century to the idolatry of our day. But before we can even address idolatry in our own lives, we have to have a working definition of what that is. I have used two for the last five weeks. I will share them with you only once more this morning. The first one is from theologian and pastor John Piper. He says, anything an idol, anything that is an idol, or an idol is anything that we come to rely on for some blessing or help or guidance in the place of a wholehearted reliance on the true and living God. And as I have said repeatedly, I like the word reliance there. Because idolatry is not just that which we adore and worship. We picture ancient individuals worshiping at a golden calf or a graven image. Idolatry really speaks to what we rely on. And the reason is, whatever we come to rely on, whatever we depend on, that's what we end up adoring and worshiping. And then Tim Keller adds an aspect to it I thought edifying. It is anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It's okay to have daydreams. It's not okay if none of those daydreams are about the Lord, about his goodness, about his grace, about his manifest power and glory in your life individually, day Today, and early on, I gave you a list of what modern-day idols could be from our biblical counseling ministry. You can turn a person into an idol, a position, a, a possession, money or the pursuit of money, medication, control. Conversations can become sources of reliance and idolatry. Education, entertainment, sex, food, unforgiveness, Achievement, all achievement, all these things can become idols that consume our hearts more than the Lord. And I have dealt with them as thoroughly as I know how. So in many ways, today is a summation, but my hope is, is that if we've built a really good toolbox for you to deal with idolatry over the last few weeks, today we're going to put a good handle on it. 
So you can pick that box up and you can take it with you into your life. For a box is worthless if it doesn't have a handle. If you can't take it with you, it doesn't make any difference what is inside of it. Now, to do that, we've been thinking about the correlation between idols in our lives, American idols, and of course the show that looked for great recording artists. And I thought I would encourage, you know, my job is not to grow you artistically. I, I can't do that. And, and I understand that not all of you are as refined and cultured as myself. And I recognize that. Not everybody can be a Renaissance man. But I thought that inside of this sermon, to end American idols, you were worth about 30 seconds of what real music should sound like. You want to know what I think about when I think about real music? Roll it, boys. That's real music. Listen to Johnny. He'll start humming in a minute. Here it comes. Oh, do it, Johnny. Man, that's just good. 1956, he rocked the world with this song. Look at the lyric. I like the lyric. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends out for the tie that binds. Because you're mine, I walk the line. He wrote this as a way to lyrically communicate the commitment of a man to his wife. I walk the line. In fact, just a few years ago, there was a movie made about Johnny Cash, and of course it was appropriately titled, Walk the Line. What does it mean to walk the line? In fact, if you were to take this lyric, I keep the close watch on this heart of mine, you would find that if we just changed a few words, this may be the greatest summary of our series. Keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time. I keep the ends of the ties that bind because you're mine, Jesus, I walk the line. What line? What are we talking about? If you were to go back all the way to chapter 8 and chapter 9 and chapter 10, Paul is teaching us to walk the line. What kind of line? Not a line to earn God's love, but a line we walk and the tension we live in to be saved as citizens of a coming world, but to live very much in a broken world. If you imagine which you don't have to because through the gift of technology, I've put one behind me. If you imagine a line, if you will, and on the left of that line would be an area we don't want to go to, an area of so-called sinful freedom. This was some of the people in Corinth. They were saying, hey, if God's grace is free and we believe in Jesus and we check that box, then we can do what we want to. What ends up happening, though, is that when we press that, we end up becoming a slave to sin. Nobody with any knowledge of the Bible, any understanding of the gospel would say that that's not where you want to live. 
But there's another direction you don't want to go. If you go too far to the right on this spectrum of understanding, you end up with sinful fear. I'm afraid to live my life. I'm afraid to make a decision. And so these individuals who are so fearful of failing God end up reducing the Christian life to a a box to check, a list to keep. They become very legalistic. So on one end, if you don't understand the tension we live in, you are so paralyzed with fear of God's wrath, you become legalistic in your understanding of spiritual freedom. On the other end, if you throw caution to the wind, you become a slave to sin. And right in the middle, though, that's where spiritual freedom is. Spiritual freedom is a healthy understanding of the fear of God, but also a deep appreciation of the grace of God. And the woman or the man that lives here walking the line does so because they pay attention. They don't arrive, they continue to pay attention. I remind you that Paul has been writing to Christians, Christians who are all over the place in these issues. And as we find this morning, we'll see a great formula of how to walk the line. That's what I'd like to share with you this morning. Look with me in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All things, Paul says, are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, repetition, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that, for which I give thanks? And here comes our great summary. In fact, the next few verses will really be the skeleton of this sermon. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The chapter divisions and the verse divisions of the Bible were not added to just a few hundred years ago, and most of the time, the editors did a good job. This is not one of those. Verse 1 of chapter 11 is clearly a conclusion statement to chapter 10, and you may notice that in a modern translation. There's a gap there between verse 1 and verse 2. How do you walk the line? 
You don't get to take your pastor with you in every situation. You don't always have your concordance and your study Bible with you in all situations. Life is more nuanced. It's more complex, which is why I'm so thankful that our religion is not just based on the rote memorization of laws and rules, but through the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives, we can have the law of God written on our hearts. So how do we do it? At the risk of being too simplistic, I want to show you from this passage. If you care deeply about walking the line, here's what you need to do. Number one, spend your life caring about the glory of God. Look at what happens in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, Paul starts with eating and drinking because it was the eating and drinking of food that had caused the rift in the Corinthian church. Remember, there were two issues. One was eating meat that had been previously offered in pagan worship to idols, then resold to the market, then sold to the public. Some Christians struggled with it, some did not, and Paul deals with that in chapter 8 and chapter 9. We've gone into that pretty uh, deeply here. I will not revisit it. The other is attending festivals and feasts that were, de- that were designed inside of the pagan worship of these false gods. And this is where Paul draws the line. He says, you can eat the meat and certainly you can fellowship with people, but you need to be careful involving yourself in the festivities of the world that in and of themselves are nothing more than idolatry. That's what we dealt with last week about living your life at the right table. And because the table is in mind in Paul's life, the table of the Lord's Supper, which involves drinking and eating, and the table of the idol feasts, which involved drinking and eating. We see now why he would start in verse 31 with drinking and eating. But it's not just about drinking and eating because life is more than just what you drink or what you eat or who you drink with or who you eat with. Life is more than that one activity, which is why verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, and here it comes, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, you've heard that verse before. Some of you say, oh, that used to be my favorite Bible verse. You, you may actually have that verse somewhere in print. Do everything you do for the glory of God. And at the surface level, it makes pretty good sense. It's not too complicated until we assume we understand fully what the glory of God is. Why, why is Paul so consumed with the glory of God? Well, what is the glory of God? Well, there's a lot of ways that we could define it. Uh, a theologian of the past, Jonathan Edwards, says this about the glory of God. The glory of God is the weight of all that God is, the fullness of his understanding, virtue, and happiness. Now, now, now I get that. I recognize that. But if God is all of those things, and he is, the weight of who he is, his glory, his greatness, his fame, how can the small activities of one little old bitty person on a massive planet full of billions of people bring glory and honor to God? Well, I can't if you believe Paul is teaching that I add to God's greatness. 
That's not what bringing glory to God means. I can't make God any greater than he is. God was great before he made you and me. He is self-sufficient in and of himself. We do not have a man-centered view of God here at Church at the Mill. We have a God-centered view of God. And therefore, we must have a God-centered view of man. My life just makes sense when I recognize his greatness So what does it mean for a human being to be given the honor and the privilege to bring glory to God? Kevin DeYoung, I think, points this out really well. He says, to glorify God is to magnify the greatness of his character. I love his analogy. Not as a microscope magnifies by making small objects look large. That's what a microscope does. Something's too small for the naked eye, so we've got to make it look bigger so we can look at it. You ever seen those zoomed-in high-resolution photographies of the face of an insect? Man, they're ugly and mean-looking. I'm glad they're little because if those things weighed six or 800 pounds, I would not go outside. But now it is, I just end it, you know. (laughs) So you take something that's really small and you zoom in on it. I don't have to do that with God. I don't have to do that with God. The opposite is true. But as a telescope magnifies by giving us a glimpse of the things that are unimaginably big. In other words, the moon is certainly much larger than an insect. Yet, I need to use some type of magnification, a telescope, to bring my eye's ability to grasp the greatness of the moon closer to me. Therein lies the application of Paul's point. To bring glory to God in every situation and in every decision is not to come into it saying, I got to make my God great. That's the wrong, wrong assumption. The right one is to say, my God is great. And how is my decision in this moment? How is my language? How is my priorities? How are my choices reflecting the greatness of my God. It's really hard. It's really hard to mess up royally if you pause at any of life's forks in the road and ask the question, in this decision, what brings the most glory to God? In fact, when we go back and look at the passage, Paul starts in verse 23 with a statement he had made in chapter 6, verse 12. Look at verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Meaning, because of the finished work of Christ, which brought great glory to God, because of his sacrificial death and his resurrection, which displayed God's great glory, we stand fully forgiven before the Lord in Christ. That in and of itself brings great glory, which means I did not wake up this morning needing to earn my salvation. I did not wake up this morning with any question about my salvation. In fact, I live today with 100% confidence that if today is my last day, I will be with the Lord Jesus not because of anything I have done, 
but because of the great glory of God manifest in his Son given in our, on our behalf. So the existence of a Christian brings glory to God. What that means is, is that the law of the Old Testament has been fulfilled. Many of the rules and the regulations that people were trying to press on one another were fulfilled in Christ, which means in the center of the line, there is spiritual freedom. I am free to engage this world and to participate in activities that are not clearly prohibited in Scripture. Yet when I come upon those activities and there's some gray area and I'm not quite sure what to do or perhaps the decisions that I make about this particular activity or this particular relationship or this particular choice could cause harm to someone else, one of the things I have to do is back up and say, what brings the most glory to God? Am I acting in such a way so that I point people to the greatness of God. If you're harboring anger and unforgiveness against another person, you are not displaying the glory of God's forgiveness. If you live in constant anxiety and fear about the unknowns of your life, you are not displaying the glory of God's sovereignty and control. If you beat yourself up because you cannot forgive yourself for your past sins, you are not displaying the glory of the finished work of the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so what you find is, is that good theology frees you up not to want to run to sin or to run to legalism, but to walk the line of spiritual freedom. Secondly, spend your life caring about the good of others. Notice what happens in verse 32. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. Now, Corinth would have been a melting pot of people. But theologically, Paul captured everybody. Or but three people spiritually in Corinth. There were those who were Jews. Paul would have known them well. They would have been a part of the great spreading of the Jewish people out of Judah into the Roman world. There would have been those who would not have been Jews. And in the New Testament, they're often called Greeks. That's anybody that wasn't a Jew, any race, any ethnicity that wasn't a Jew. Sometimes that word Greek is substituted for the word Gentile. And then there would have been those Jews and Greeks who were saved. And when they were saved, they were grafted into the church, and the church belongs to the Lord. Thus, Paul uses the word church of God. This is not a reference to the modern-day denomination, church of God. This is the church, the redeemed of the Lord. And so Paul says, it's not enough for you to worry about the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Worry about your neighbor, your neighbor. That's what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, Love Christians as yourself. He didn't say love lost people as yourself. He didn't say love people from your culture as yourself or those outside of your culture. He says love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the things we learn in the New Testament is that we shouldn't spend our time asking, well, who's my neighbor? We should spend our time saying, how can I be a neighbor to whomever's in front of me? That's your neighbor, the person in front of you, the person that you're interacting with in that moment is your Neighbor. So Paul says here, I make it a point not to intentionally offend anyone in my life with my spiritual 
freedom. That's what he says. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Now, I think it's important to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Paul's never, ever argued to not stand for truth. In this context, he's not suggesting that I scowl in fear of controversial beliefs. All of the beliefs of Orthodox Christianity have now become controversial. Anybody in the public that says things like, there is one God, Jesus is the only way, marriage is between a man and a woman, there are only two genders, there is only one way that God has given us to express sexual love. That is between one man and one woman, and God's design is for it to be for one lifetime. Those are controversial language. Some would wrongly, but they would passionately say that is bigoted language. I cannot change the language of the Bible or the truth of God's will, and I will never do so. And if I do, remove me from this office. I will not do that. However, what Paul is talking about here are not those concrete, clear theological truths. He's not talking about orthodoxy, what we believe as communicated in the Scripture. He's talking about as I make decisions from day to day with the way I carry myself, I get to, I have to, I want to, if I'm centered on the Lord, to think about how my actions, my words, my decisions affect other people. And as much as it depends on me as a Christian, and you as well, I should not want to go into a situation to offend. I should not want to go into a situation and be controversial or confrontational. We we see this over and over again. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. For, For those are the ones that shall see the Lord. They will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, thankfully, in this passage, He unpacks this idea with the example he gives beginning in verse 23. In fact, for just a little structure, think about it this way. Verse 32 is really the exclamation. Give no offense. Verse 24 is kind of an explanation. And then verse 28 is a great example. Now, we've read verse 32. Look at verse 24 with me in your copy of God's Word. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So this is what it means. So so if you think about it, it's it's real simple, but don't miss it. If I'm thinking about what is best for you, the first thing I'm going to do is not try to offend you. If I'm thinking about what's best for you, the first thing I'm going to do is not walk into the situation and be a jerk, be impatient, be unkind, be unloving. In fact, if I find out I have offended you, now again, I'm not talking about an issue of Scripture. I'm just talking about the way I've carried myself, something I've said, a decision I've made, a, a liberty that I've enjoyed that caused you to stumble, whatever it is. If I find out I have offended you, that's got to bother me if I love Jesus. It's got to bother me. And I need to go and say, I'm sorry that I offended you. That was not my intent, but my intent obviously did not come to fruition in what happened. And so would you forgive me because I want to do good to you. This is the way I do it in parenting. I tell my kids, be a blessing. Don't be a knucklehead. Walk into every situation and be a blessing. Be a blessing. Encourage people around you. It is magnetic. 
You can move mountains if you'll believe in people and encourage people. You may have to speak truth to people. They're going to get it right. They're going to get it wrong. You're going to get it right. You're going to get it wrong. Improve every situation you go into. Make it matter. Do not let your day happen to you. Go happen to it. This is the people of God. And then after this explanation, he gives a great example. He starts off by saying what he's already said. Eat the meat if you want to. (laughs) If you buy the meat and you're not worshiping the idol and the meat's just sold secondary, maybe a broker bought it, sold it to the market, the market sells it to you, eat the meat. That's fine. You can get anything you want. It's all clean now because of Peter's vision. I praise God for that every time I bust up into a barbecue joint as a blood-bought child of the king. (laughs) Eat the meat. And then he says... If a lost person, if a pagan wants to come, you have come dinner, you to have dinner with them, go eat with them. How are we going to reach the world if we don't have dinner with them? Go, Go eat with them. He says, if you are disposed to go, if you're able to go, go. And whatever they put in front of you, eat it. Don't complain. Well, I can't have this. Might have been offered to this God. Just be grateful. Be grateful. Be hospitable. Eat what is in front of you. Be a kind guest. But then he supposes the situation. What happens if you get invited? And lo and behold, another Christian gets invited, and they're not as strong as you are in that area. And it's a real issue for them to eat this meat. And they lean over to you, and they say, you know, this came from idols. Paul says, look, don't eat it. Just just don't eat it, not to offend them. In other words, be, be willing to bend a little for what's best for the other person. Now, I just described in, in, in rather loose language the situation. Now, see now if it makes more sense when we read it. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For, verse 26, is a quotation of Psalm 24.1. For the earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. The Jews would pray this prayer often. They would recite Psalm 24.1 when they gave thanks over their meal. You're going to have lunch today, and when you do, I hope you'll bow and give thanks. And when you do, you'll you'll pray in a number of different ways. We have some really interesting prayers at the Horton table with the little ones. They say all all kind of stuff. And uh, one time I was putting my little girl to bed this week, and I was on my knees, and she was sitting on the bed, and we were praying, and she was praying, and then Rhett was going to pray, and then I was going to pray, and and she prayed a nice little prayer, and she just stopped. And I looked up at her. She said, I need a little help finishing, Dad. I said, okay, in Jesus' name, amen. She said, thank you. I couldn't remember that. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was glad, I was glad, glad to help her. Glad to help. It's not often women ask you know, me to help them finish what they're going to say. But uh, did I just offend you? Sorry. So the, the thing is, is that, the, the thing is, is that at some point, though, today, maybe already at breakfast, at lunch, supper, you will say, Lord, we thank you for this food. Now, we hear it so much that, that we, I, do, I know, we, we go through the motions, and we've got to be careful with that, but it is a pause and an acknowledgement that it all belonged to the Lord, that the vegetables, that the flesh in front of you, whether it be a piece of meat, chicken, fish, whatever, that these were creatures or organisms created by the Lord, and they were created by the Lord on his earth, and it all belongs to him. And not only what I am eating belongs to the Lord, the money used to buy it belongs to the Lord, and the person eating it and giving thanks belongs to the Lord. And so in this moment, I'm acknowledging his greatness, or point number one, his glory. 
This is about him. I'm pausing to say I did go to work. I was paid a salary. I used that salary to buy a meal. The meal was brought to me. A lot of humans involved. But God, you gave me the job. You gave me the salary. You gave me the city. You gave me the restaurant. You gave me the table. You gave me the mouth and the teeth. You gave me the stomach to digest it. You gave the animal to sacrifice to eat it. You gave the vegetable to grow. And before the vegetable was on my place, you put the sun in its place to grow that vegetable long before you put me in my place. So I bow and acknowledge your greatness and my smallness. And this is why Paul's saying, don't make the small things big and make the big God small. Do the opposite. Which is why he says in verse 25, eat whatever is sold. And then something interesting happens in verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is said before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone, and there's a debate there, scholars don't know, is the someone a lost person who knows you're a Christian? Is the someone a weaker Christian? We we don't know, and Paul doesn't clarify. Somebody leans over and says, this has been offered in sacrifice. Then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you. In other words, if it's going to cause you to stumble, fine, I, I don't have to have it tonight. It's, it's okay. And then he goes on to clarify that this is really about their conscience and not about your conscience. For why should my liberty be determined, second phrase, verse 29, by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that? For which I give Thanks. So, so, so this idea comes in decision making. I've already given you the first question. I'm in a situation I don't understand. I'm struggling. What brings the most glory to God? Second question. What does the good for those around me? See, we live in a day and age that wants to think about me. What do I want? Not what is good for those around me. Last one. Spend your life caring about the gospel going forward. I'll tell you my favorite phrase in this whole passage. I've been in it since Monday. Is how verse 33 ends. Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seek I am not I do not seeking my own advantage. Watch this phrase, but that of many, that they may be saved. People coming to know the Lord matters most in every decision I make. And and I, I would like to tell you that it's more complex than that, but it's not. And, and while I'll, I'll never, ever take advantage of you from this stage, I'll pick on me. When DJ gets it wrong, one of three things have happened. And most of the time, it's a combination of the three. In the moment of my sin, my struggle, my fumble in my words, my decisions, when I get it wrong... I did not think of the glory of God. I thought about myself above others. And I stopped thinking about the salvation that people need. But the good news is, 
is as powerfully simple as that is, the opposite is true. I'm not suggesting perfection, but I'm telling you, you show me a woman who will get up every day and in every situation ask the question before I make a decision, in my pause of uncertainty, what brings the most glory to God? What is good for those around me? And what pushes the gospel forward? It's as if Paul is saying, there are already stumbling blocks to the gospel. He's preached one. Remember what he said way back in chapter 1? He said, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. You cannot remove all the stumbling blocks to getting saved. People will have to deal with the stumbling block of a crucified king. You either believe it or you don't. And then when you come to the realization of your own sin, often your own resistance to his lordship is a stumbling block. I'm not saying that it is easy or effortless to be saved. There is a wrestling match that goes on in people's heart when they truly surrender to the Lord. We can't remove that. The cross is controversial, we'll still preach it. The blood is controversial, we'll still preach it. The exclusivity of Christ, meaning he is the only way to be saved, is controversial, we will still preach it. We do not remove the stumbling blocks that are here. We just don't need to go around adding more. Sometimes we add stumbling blocks to people. We become the stumbling block and the barrier for them to recognize the greatness of a God who would save them into a right relationship that does not call them to legalism, but also tells them, no, you don't get to live the way you want to live all times and all places. Rather, spiritual freedom is found in finding your purpose in the Lord, your holiness in the Lord, your forgiveness in the Lord, your peace in the Lord. And where that is, there is truth. And Jesus said, when the truth is manifest in your life, it will set you free. And that is spiritual freedom. So when you think about that in your life, let's just be real practical. If your right that you think you have ever trumps your neighbor's redemption, you're wrong. You're wrong. Well, I can do that. I'm saved. I can, I can do it. If your right ever trumps your neighbor's redemption, you're wrong. I'm afraid many conservative Christians can become so passionate about our rights, we forget that individuals and ideologies that frustrate us so much, frustrate us, not because they're trying to be difficult or wrong, they're lost. They're lost. Where would you be had Christ not saved you? How would you think? How would you make decisions? How would you view the world? It doesn't mean we don't stand for what is right. It doesn't mean we can't have our convictions. It doesn't mean we can't live out our belief system. It just means that I don't have the spiritual liberty in Christ to forget that lost people matter in every decision I make. I mean, you think about some of the areas and how this manifests itself. Here, here's something to consider as we close. How do you make decisions related to your language? Does it always glorify God? Is it thinking about others? 
What about your work attitude? What about modesty? Can you glorify God and go to the beach half naked? Can you glorify God and objectify every woman that walks by you? Can you glorify God if you're unkept? You don't care for yourself. You don't try to present yourself well. Does it bring glory and honor to God for you to have an irresponsible, abusive relationship with alcohol? Gambling's one that's really not preached about anymore. My dad taught me about that. My dad never judged anybody. He believed strongly that gambling was wrong. Therefore, when I'd be on some little team or in some league and they'd sell raffle tickets, he wouldn't say a word. He wouldn't preach to anybody. He would just find out how many raffle tickets are you supposed to sell. Fifty, Daddy. How much are they? Two dollars a piece. It's okay, son. He'd return the tickets to the coach and he'd write the coach a hundred dollar donation to the team. Quietly showing me that he wasn't going to participate in something that he believed he was against. Media consumption. What you watch, what you feed yourself, glorify God. Would you open up your bank statement and allow a mature Christian to look at it with you? And could you make the argument, the way I'm managing my money brings glory and honor to God, cares about my neighbor, and cares about lost people. Your political views. I was in a sporting goods store the other day. This guy's standing at the gun counter beside me. I like gun counters. He had a hat and a shirt on. Both of them had the same message. Two words. The first one was a very inappropriate explicitive. And the second one was the last name of our current president. Blank Biden. Except it wasn't a blank. I didn't have any of my children with me. But I sat there and I looked at that guy's t-shirt and his hat and I thought, I bet you he would say he's a Christian. And now I can't judge his heart or his soul and I didn't speak to him. Quite frankly, I didn't want to speak to him. But imagine wearing that kind of language out where children who are learning phonemic awareness and how to sound stuff out are going to repeat that word. That doesn't bring glory to God. The way you carry yourself on social media, your commitment to church. We could go on and on and on. And again, I would be careful because any list is my list. And if we get into lists, we're going to start drifting that way. Ask those questions. What brings the most glory to God? What is good for those around me? And what pushes the gospel? And I love verse 1 of chapter 11. Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Jesus walked the line. Jesus ate with sinners and didn't sin. Talked to prostitutes, yet never failed morally. Loved lepers, yet never became unclean. Jesus walked the line. Paul followed Jesus. And then Paul says, you and me should follow him. But why? So that others can follow us. Hundreds of people in this room. It feels like all of you bring five little people with you every week. How are they going to know to walk the line if we don't? I believe in teaching them the Bible. I've given my life to the preaching of his word. But I can tell you what they need in addition to the proclamation of his word are people walking the line.
the line of grace and holiness. Walk the line.